Hello and welcome to the Sifted podcast recorded at Dream Factory, the content creation house for startups. I'm Amy, Sifted's editor. And I'm Eleanor, Sifted's deputy editor. And at Sifted, we report on Europe's tech, VC and startup sector. And every week on this podcast, we talk to our journalists who've been out and about reporting lots of interesting stories. We talk about the articles that they've written and we sometimes get on some special guests, including one in this episode. We have a real live billionaire on this episode. It's going to be wild. So we are going to be having a big old chunky news roundup because there has been a lot going on. We are going to be speaking to our reporter based in Germany, Miriam Partington, who's written a very interesting piece on the rise of steward owned companies. And she'll be explaining all about what that means. And our Barcelona based reporter, Tim, who doubles up as our He's our taboo reporter. Taboo reporter was at a psychedelic symposium last week where he met Christian Angermeyer, who's a big deal in that scene. And he's got an interview with Christian. So lots of good stuff coming up. So what's been going on this week? A very exciting thing that's happened in the Sifted office this week is that I brought back some crickets from the food tech conference I was at last week. Because have you even been to a food tech conference if you don't bring back some sort of interesting food type? And I've been very impressed. The people have Sifted have embraced sampling the crickets. I don't think that many of them would purchase the cricket snacks, but they have tried them. Yeah, they're like eating them in the office, definitely. And Georgina, who's our podcast producer, she thinks the salt and vinegar flavour are especially nice. She wanted us to mention that on the podcast. (laughs) I love that. Uh, But in actual reporting news, I also have thoroughly enjoyed, Eleanor, your piece with the four Polish quantum grandpas. Tell us about them. The most fun interview I ever had in my entire life. And I've done a lot of interviews in my life, but basically there are these four Polish, they're not all grandpas because they don't all have grandchildren, but they're all of in their six, age. Of grandparents' age, right? Seniors. And they all have insane PhDs and masters in like chemistry and physics and all that stuff. And they have created a quantum startup making quantum random number generators, which we're going to need in the future when we have quantum computers that are powerful enough to hack all of our encryption right now. Anyway, hilariously, the main photo that I took was on my Zoom call with them. And someone in the Sifted team saw the photo and was like, you are totally flirting with them. I can see it from that photo. And I was like, maybe. And why are they doing it? Why aren't they just, you know, sitting on their porches, playing bowls or whatever you do when you retire? Because retirement is boring. That was literally what one of them told me was he was retired. He was sitting at home reading a magazine and was like, oh, I have this idea. Why don't I make a company? And they ha- they show no sign of slowing down. I asked them if they were going to do another company after this. And they were like, don't count us out yet. So <laughs> amazing and inspiration for us all. Exactly. So let's move on to the news, though, because it is juicy, juicy. Well, this week we had what Amy's been waiting for for a really long time. I've so, had the popcorn at the ready. <laughs> um, was the great speedy de- grocery delivery consolidation begins. What happened, Amy? So Flink, which is one of the ones that has raised the most money based in Germany, acquired Kaju, which is a Paris-based competitor. We don't know how much it was for, but they acquired 30 sort of the delivery hubs. It means they're now live in nine cities in France, 
and they landed they kind of effectively landed could use partnership with Carrefour which is one of the biggest supermarkets in France and we expect there will be a lot more coming we're hearing that some of the companies are struggling to raise we're also hearing that some are pulling out of some of their not so good markets we need to fully source these stories before we can publish them but if anyone has any tips they would like to send us we are all ears We also had a really interesting piece this week from our reporter Kai about the gender pay gap at UK unicorns. And it's not looking good. Sadly, but unsurprisingly, it's not looking good. So here are some data points. In 2017, the women at Monzo, the digital bank, were paid 52p for every pound that a man earned. Now the gap has massively improved. Um, so in 2021, which is when this data is from, they, the gap was just 4.3p. But it's a bit more complicated than just how much the women are paid because it's also about what percentage of the senior leadership team are women. And at Monzo, that's still only a third. So there's still some improvement to do there. In terms of what gender pay gap reporting actually is, it is now a requirement from the UK government. If you have over 250 employees, this is something you have to report. And that meant that for 2021, there were 20 UK unicorns that had to submit this data. And only seven of them were better than the national average. So the national average is that women get paid 90p for every pound a man gets paid. And who was the absolute worst, Amy? So at the bottom of the pit was the gaming startup Improbable. And not only was it the worst, it also got worse. So its gender pay gap has increased since 2020. So the gap went from women being paid 76.9p for every pound a man earned to 71.5p. And Improbable told Sifted that that is a pipeline problem, that there just aren't enough women around who who qualify for their highest paying technical roles. That's what Improbable is claiming. That's their excuse. I don't have any words for that. Um, So let's move on to the next piece. (laughs) (laughs) And then the other massive story before we get on to Miriam's piece is obviously what's going on with valuations. This is an ongoing story we are all sinking our teeth into at the moment. And our reporter Tim did a brilliant piece on it. Eleanor, you edited that one. What's What's the top line? I mean, the top line is pretty much what we've kind of been hearing for the last couple of months, which is December was really the last of the heady days of 2020 and 2021 VC party splash that cash. And we're moving into a time now, given the slowdown in public markets and the pickup in inflation, where companies just aren't able to raise money at the same really, really high valuations that they were able to before. And that's particularly marked at the later stages. So the reason for that is that if you look at, you know, companies that are listed, like, I don't know, Deliveroo, right? And then you look at a company like Getir. Like Getir is valued so, so much more than Deliveroo and Deliveroo is a listed company. And so investors are really asking themselves whether these companies that in more favorable market conditions would be thinking about IPOing, right? If they're really actually worth all of this money. And that means that some of these companies are obviously going to have to go out and raise uh, a lower valuation. But interestingly enough, investors still really think that the most competitive companies will continue to raise big rounds at competitive valuations. I mean, VCs still have a lot of cash to spend, 
right? And so that will continue. But companies that aren't able to show really strong performance net met metrics will probably struggle. And then this is kind of seeping in at earlier stages as well, but not to as acute an extent. And the message from in, in Tim's piece about the valuations, a lot of the VCs were saying, you know, if you can cut costs and you can preserve your runway, like you probably should do it now. So obviously this is something we will be reporting on a lot and on a I guess a serious note if you are a founder or someone who's you know a leader at a startup and you have questions about what this means for your company or you kind of want advice about what, what do you do when you maybe need to let go of staff or you need to revise your hiring plans or lots of these tricky things companies will be going through let us know we have lots of different articles we do where we go out and we find experts and either figure out what's going on or get advice for them for startups so please drop us an email i'm amy at sifted.eu For our next story, we're off to Germany to speak to our Berlin correspondent, Miriam Partington, who's joining us after kind of a long night at a hotel being kept awake by some German techno. But still, I would assume very excited to talk to us about a very cool piece she did this week about steward-owned companies. And more startups are looking to this form of governance as an alternative to giving away ownership to VCs and also as a way to give back to their employees and other stakeholders. Miriam, can you tell us a little bit what steward ownership is? Yeah, sure. So steward ownership is kind of complicated, but I'll try and keep it short. Basically, steward-owned companies are for-profit but the money they make isn't taken away by investors. It's basically reinvested into the company. And this is all to kind of promote its mission or the rest of the money can basically be given away to charitable causes. But there's kind of two main strands to steward ownership. So the first thing is that the shares are separated into classes, which basically split like the voting rights and then the profit rights. And this allows the control of the business to stay with the founders and the employees rather than the investors. And then also the capital rights are given to a foundation to basically hold on to and to safeguard. And this foundation is like an external body that basically has like hard veto powers. So they can block like any decisions that could compromise the mission of the company. So say the company wanted to exit or make a partnership with some other company that wasn't very ethical or didn't align with the company's goals, then this foundation can like forbid that to happen basically. And so can you give a, maybe an example of one of these companies and, and why did they pursue this path? Yeah, so quite an obvious example is Ecosia, which is a Berlin-based search engine, which basically uses the ad revenue it makes to plant trees. And Christian Kroll, the founder, I think when he founded the company, he knew that he didn't really care about making loads of profit. He actually just wanted to use all the profit to help climate change. And so I think making the company steward-owned kind of safeguarded that mission and it made sure that like no investors would like pile in and like take the company away from pursuing that mission, if that makes sense. And I know Ecosia hasn't raised from VCs, but can a steward-owned company raise from outside investors? What would that look like? Yeah, so they, they can, but these investors basically have to be happy with the fact that they're not going to receive massive returns. Like as an investor, you can make returns like capped returns, 
And you can also make money back via dividends. But this isn't like huge. Like this isn't like VCs like five times plus or whatever. So I think these investors, number one, they have to be completely aligned with the company's mission. And number two, they also have to accept that they don't really have any decision making power and they also don't really get that much money out of it. Super interesting. So I know we're hearing lots about ESG and VC. So this is probably not for the, how would I say, the ESG tourists that are dabbling in a, a little bit, but for real investors that are really impact focused, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they don't they don't really get much out of it. They're they're mostly just kind of offering their support to a company that really wants to make a difference. So I think traditional investors that do have to you know get these returns. Uh, to fulfill their fiduciary duty, these companies perhaps aren't going to be so interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Well, it sounds really good, like saving the world and all that stuff. But are there any challenges to adopting this model? Absolutely. I mean, in nearly every country in Europe, as far as I know, and maybe in the US as well, there's no kind of legal form for these kind of companies to adopt. So it's not like when you go to found a business and you're like, do you want to be a limited liability company? Do you want to be a nonprofit? Do you want to be this? There's no template for steward ownership. So basically, most of the companies right now have to shell out loads in legal fees to get this to work. And there's also an organization in Germany called the Purpose Foundation, and they've helped like over 100 companies like transition to steward ownership as a service. And I didn't really get to the bottom of how much they actually charge, but I know that it is kind of suited to the company's capacity to pay. Also, you talked about how Germany is actually working on kind of a fix to that legal hurdle for companies to do this, right? Yeah, I mean, it's been in the pipeline for a while. And the Purpose Foundation has been has been going since 2015. And since then, they've been like lobbying towards Germany, making this kind of legal framework for steward ownership. And according to founders like Christian Kroll, for example, from Ecosia, this legal framework is being pushed by the current constitution. And so it could be realized over the next year or two. But I'm personally a little bit skeptical because everything's always a bit slow in Germany. So (laughs) I would expect it to be a little bit longer than that. But uh, it's definitely moving. Super interesting. Thank you so much, Miriam. And if there are any steward-owned companies out there that we didn't write about in your piece, would love to hear from them. Thanks, Miriam. Thank you. And for our final story today, we're dialing into Spain, where our Iberia correspondent, Tim Smith, is based. He also doubles up, as Eleanor mentioned earlier, as our taboo or psychedelic drugs correspondent. And as we mentioned last week, he had been to the Psychedelic Symposium in London, meeting some of the people who are shaping this new, very intriguing industry that don't just want to do fun drugs, but also drugs that help with the mental health crisis and PTSD and all sorts of serious, massive problems that we need to deal with. So, Tim, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, that's right. I was in London last week at this event called Psych Symposium, which, as you say, was this kind of gathering of everyone in the industry of psychedelic therapy, which is people who are trying to use psychedelic drugs, used to be very stigmatised back in the 60s as you know part of the hippie movement, but now... People are seeing kind of therapeutic potential in them and there's lots of very well-funded companies trying to take some of these compounds through clinical trials so that we can get psychedelics from a doctor rather than from your drug dealer on the corner of the street. 
And yeah, it's an exciting sector. Lots of money is going into it. And there's a lot of European companies who are leading the way. And one of those is a company called Atai Life Sciences. And it's set up by a quite interesting European billionaire called Christian Angermeyer. Also a lot of money from libertarian US billionaire Peter Thiel. So they've essentially bought up a load of other companies who are working on drugs. And yeah, depending on who you ask, Christian Angermeyer, the founder, is either a visionary who's directing capital into this hopefully revolutionary fix to the mental health crisis, or he is a nasty capitalist who is trying to steal the intellectual property rights to the drugs that have been used for centuries in indigenous cultures. So yeah, I caught up with Christian and asked him a bit about what Atai Life Science is up to at the moment. Okay, so Christian, we're at London's National Gallery at the Sykes Symposium. Uh, how are you doing? Uh, I just arrived. So far, so good. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be cool, I guess. So we haven't got much time, so I'll kick on. We'll start with an easy one. Uh, Atai stock price has been on the way down for a yes. while. Why is that? Well, all biotech stocks are going down, so it's not an Atai thing. Like Having said that, in no way does sort of the, the, the decline of the biotech indices, and then so including Atai, sort of mirror anything fundamental anymore. So what is happening in my view is that while a year ago, everybody was super positive and I would say everything was priced to perfection. People were like, oh yeah, this is all zero interest rates forever, da, da, da. And yes, hindsight stocks early last year, January, when was the height, uh, were trading high. Yeah? And yes, there was maybe a correction warranted because interest rates are going up, but now the market is completely overshooting into the other direction, as it does. Like, it's like a pendulum and it's overshooting one and it's overshooting the other direction. So, because if you look, let's take now a tie. Yeah? We have run about $350 million cash, yeah? but our market cap is whatever, $600 million, like 600 something. That means for like $200 million, $150 million, you get more than nine clinical drugs for the biggest problem in healthcare, which is mental health, yeah? So, if just one of our drugs will be successful, yeah, that is worth more than several hundred million dollars in any environment. Interest rates could be at 10%. Yeah, one single successful approved depression drug, one single approved addiction drug is worth way more than 100, 200 million. Yeah, and you point out that, you know, you're working on a number of different clinical applications, different compounds, new therapies that could be really exciting for mental health treatment. But at the same time, some of these therapies aren't necessarily new. We're learning from cultures from way back when, centuries, generations ago, in terms of indigenous communities who have used these compounds. What relationship should highly backed, very well-funded companies have with those communities as we develop these treatments? How much should those indigenous communities benefit? So they should, this is why we have a Thai Impact. So we so we, just explain what a Thai Impact is. So a Thai Impact is our non-profit arm where we give parts of our profits in the future, but also we also took uh, a part of our IPO proceeds yeah, in order to fund non-profit projects. And one of those three pillars next to access and education is giving back to a community. So my meaning, I don't think I'm known for that, but like, I think it's a very positive thing. Like, I think the capitalistic model is the right thing. Yeah, because let's go back. Like the only way to get a multitude of drugs, because I'm very proud that we have these, the broadest pipeline of novel mental health treatments. The only way to fund these trials, which are 100 million plus per drug, is to raise money, make money for investors whatsoever. Having said that, there are people, communities, 
who do it since thousands of years. And we would all agree, say gut feeling or like out of our emotion, that something should be given back. Yeah. So that is then a part where sort of charity, non-profit initiatives can kick in. So as said, a tie has a tie impact. And I'm also revealing a big project in the middle of the year on that topic. Okay, excited to hear about that. So obviously, as we've touched on, yours is a patent-based model. You're trying to take drugs through clinical trials to win patents so that you can then sell those drugs and make your money back for your investors. Where do you think this market is going in terms of drug reform policy? People have described things like psilocybin, which is obviously very relevant to a portfolio company, Compass, as psilocybin being the next cannabis. Where do you think you know decriminalization, less tight drug control laws on psilocybin, how would that affect your business? So first of all, let's start with the question. So I think it won't affect our business at all. Yeah, because you just need to look at the Netherlands. The Netherlands, you can buy magic, they call it magic truffles, to a little bit bend a loophole or how you would say. But like in the Netherlands, you can buy in coffee shops magic truffles. Depressive people are not going to a coffee shop and randomly medicating himself. So that, let's say the consumer, potential consumer market, which is a fraction, has no overlap. So it's not a commercial reason why I'm against legalization. It's like, if you look at how strong these experiences can be, and I see it in our trials, and I see it in any trial, if you look at the details, if you look at the patient reports, people who have a mental health issue, and these are the people we should put first, yeah, because they really need it. It's not a pleasure for them. Yeah, that's a needed therapy. Their trips can be enormously challenging, and the outcome of their trip also depends on having a good therapist without you. So what would happen, in my point of view, and by the way, this is exactly the same mistake we did in the 60s. Yeah, if the drug were available everywhere and people with mental health issues would start self-medicating, things can go wrong really quickly and that would set back the entire movement. Yeah, some people within the psychedelic community are a little bit concerned about very heavily funded companies like Atai, also obviously got the backing of people like Peter Thiel doing what they would describe as a kind of patent land grab and trying to own as much of this space as they can so that these substances, which as we've touched on, have been owned you know, by different communities for centuries, so that you own that and then there's a kind of monopoly on this new age of psychedelic therapy. What would you do to reassure people that non-profits, other smaller organisations wanting to do research won't be hampered by your patent strategy? You already said it. First of all, you described it right, and I'm very proud about it. Like, we do a patent land grab. Yeah, I want to own a big market share, and I say it again, it is the right thing for patients, yeah? What people confuse are two things. First of all, I'm not going to show up at Burning Man and charge a fee, because we're talking about the medical use of synthetic versions of these drugs. So our patent strategy in no way is somehow hindering or negatively affecting indigenous communities. It's not affecting... What about other scientific so, so researchers? So, so it doesn't. I do think there are some critics who are just jealous and making things up, but I think the majority of people might have a concern, which I want to say, look, I'm not going to shop at Burning Man. And we're not... It's completely different fields. It's synthetic forms for medical use. Yeah. The same research is always possible. By the way, this is the reason, I have to say, why there are companies out there who are doing stuff which 100% will violate our patents. We cannot stop people doing research. They cannot commercialize it. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Then they're hitting our patents. Yeah? 
but research is always possible. So, and I think people conflating either deliberately, that would be sad because jealousy is a vice and then they should take more psychedelics, yeah? Or because they not know it, so hopefully I can educate them, they're conflating indigenous, conflating research and they're conflating their commercial medical use. Okay, Christian, you've got a panel to go and get to, but thank you very much thank for talking to Thank you very much, it was awesome. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks so much to Tim for bringing our first ever billionaire onto the Sifted podcast. Hopefully not our last. (laughs) Um, This episode of the Sifted podcast was recorded in Dream Factory, a content creation house for startups based in Shoreditch, who have very kindly offered Sifted readers a discount code, which gives you £300 off the £3,000 yearly membership. And all you need to do is quote Sifted 300 300 when you book a tour or apply for membership. And if you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of European tech, startups and VC, go to sifted.eu to check out our coverage. And on June the 2nd, if you don't have any plans and you're near or fancy a trip to Vienna, we are holding our next Sifted sessions as part of Vienna Up, which is a big festival that is taking place that week in the city. You can register for a free ticket now on our website under events. So please check out the programme. Awesome. And let us know what you think of the Sifted podcast on Twitter or email us at hello at sifted.eu. And we are excited to see you next week. Ciao. Bye.